Hare Krishna. Welcome to today's episode of Chasing Reality Podcast with me, Ryan, a.k.a. Ramananda Das. We're very fortunate. We have yet another esteemed guest, um, Professor Garland Allen, who is a very well-known historian of science and specifically the, the history of biology. In fact, he was there in the early... Uh, 20th, earliest 20th century for the inception of the field itself. So he knows all about this um, better than most, I imagine. Uh, I'm very excited because I've got some specific questions to ask him. Um, he's written a number of articles and books, as you can imagine, including 2017 Scientific Process and Social Issues in Biology Education, which I think is a must read for all of us um, biologists. So thank you very much for listening. And without further ado, let's get started. Okay, well, lovely to meet you, Gar. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I, I really appreciate your time because I know that you've, you've got so much experience in the history of biology. My understanding is that you, you actually were there at the beginning of the field's inception. And so um, I just, I'd just like to ask you, how is it in general, having seen the progression of this, this field since, since its onset? There's not many people who could really say that in a field. Well, that is correct. I mean, in, in a sense, uh, the field of history of biology was uh, beginning to form in the 19, uh, late 1950s and 1960s. Uh, the history of science was really dominated by history of the physical sciences up to that point. And uh, a few uh, discussions of things like Mendel and Darwin were in, encompassed under Victorian studies, really more than under a, a field that was known as history of biology. Uh, but in the 1960s, people like uh, Everett Mendelssohn, John Green, and others began to really carve out a, a, a new field, uh, if you will, which was really looking at the history of biology, both from the cultural and philosophical, but also from the detailed scientific uh, perspective, and that is that uh, it really did emphasize uh, dealing with the science, with the understanding of the you know complexities of the scientific experiments or arguments, uh, and uh, in that sense differed from the older Victorian studies, which were more focused on the cultural um, aspects. So it was uh, the journal, the history of biology, was formed in 1968, uh, the first real journal. Uh, uh, associated with uh, the, the field. Um, the History of Science Society had published articles on the history of biology in its journal called ISIS, uh, but that was a journal, general journal for the history of science, not just biology. So the founding of this journal was really, the, I think, the uh, opening uh, aspect of the field of history of biology. And what's been interesting in over the years has been the uh, growth of the field. Uh, at first, it was heavily dominated by what were called internalist uh, studies, that is, uh, studies that really looked at the details of the science uh, in, uh, in all their aspects, uh, but uh, was minimal in its uh, discussion of social, economic context, and so on. Uh, and that, in some sense, was following the 
uh, lead of the history of the physical sciences, which had been very technical up to that point. Uh, but as time went on, biology, the history of biology got very much caught up in uh, the uh, issues of, uh, of writing contextual history, uh, the so-called science wars about in the 1980s and 90s about whether science was uh, really ever able to be completely separate from its culture and therefore, quote, objective, or whether uh, it was always going to be uh, composed of a subjective element that uh, uh, influenced the way theories were, uh, ideas were formulated, hypotheses were devised, experiments uh, and or observations uh, designed and results interpreted. Uh, so that movement uh, that really was very much emphasis on contextual uh, set up a dichotomy between you know how much of history of biology should be uh, focused on the scientific details, how much on the cultural context, or can they both be uh, accomplished by some kind of a synthetic approach? And I think we're at more at that point right now, uh, rather than seeing this as an either or way of interpreting uh, the history. Uh, so that uh, in my own work uh, right now, I'm trying to write a history of uh, genetics, uh, incorporating both of those approaches. Uh, so not minimizing the scientific detail, but also trying to emphasize how genetics fit into a, a very rapidly changing economic and social context around the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. So I think we're in a, a, a more sophisticated uh, place right now. The other interesting trend has been the relationship between the history of uh, biology and the history of medicine and philosophy of science and philosophy of biology in particular. And in both of those areas, uh, some strides have been made, uh, but my own feeling is that we need to do a lot more to bring those perspectives, biomedicine uh, and uh, the uh, true uh, uh, philosophy of biology and philosophy of science, but particularly philosophy of science applied to biology uh, into our work. So uh, there's uh, some very exciting uh, stuff to do ahead, a lot of synthetic work uh, that uh, is, I think, going to be uh, very uh, interesting to watch over the next uh, decade or so. Thank you. I, it, for me, it's fascinating to hear about the the history and also the, the, the philosophy of science in general, but specifically biology, because that's my background. Um, uh -huh. When I was in the lab, I, I had, I was motivated by certain things. I was very curious. I was, I loved the idea of trying to figure out what life is. Um, uh -huh. do, you, do you think that in terms of unification, you mentioned synthesizing, um, where, is, where, can, where does that come from? Does it come from a place of intention? So for example, you know, a unified intention, or is it, or is it something more than that? I'm just struggling to think that all huge disparate fields can come together. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure I'd give you a definitive answer on that. Uh, uh, it, it is certainly not as uh, conscious a program uh, as it was, for example, in the 1950s when the Unity of Science movement uh, came out of Vienna and the Vienna Circle and all of that. Uh, and the, probably the culmination of that was Thomas Kuhn's book on the structure of scientific revolutions. Uh, so what's happening today is, I think, a little less uh, self-conscious program building, but it's more uh, 
arising out of the empirical necessity in some sense. Uh, you really can't write about uh, the development of the chromosome theory uh, in 1910 to 1930 uh, without engaging with the philosophical issues that were actually being debated uh, by uh, the people doing the scientific work at the time uh, or by philosophers who were looking at the scientific work, at, such as Alfred North Whitehead, and trying to devise a sort of a unified or a, at least a comprehensive uh, picture of what biology uh, is or and or what it should be. So I think, at least I found in my own experience, uh, I lose something by ignoring these other approaches, including uh, biomedicine. So that uh, it, it's it's not. Uh, I, I personally like to synthesize and bring things together, but I think it's uh, and that is a part of my scholarly program, I guess, if you wanted to call it that. Uh, that uh, I do want to bring these various approaches to bear on uh, a particular historical period or a particular historical development in biology, uh, but it's certainly not a movement uh, among scholars in general uh, as it was in the uh, 40, 30s and 40s and 50s. I see. Okay. And my understanding is you, you were saying it's it's mainly now coming um, not necessarily in, as a kind of active movement to synthesize things, but more as a necessity um, to be able to really understand. Yeah. Uh, well, it, that I'm speaking uh, from my own experience about that. Uh, I, I'm not sure that other people who are doing it, uh, whether they feel the necessity or whether they actually have a more active programmatic uh, goal in mind. But uh, my own uh, feeling is it certainly has enriched the work, and I think it's made it better uh, to try to bring all of those perspectives uh, to bear on uh, the particular issues I'm trying to uh, write about. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to the. Um, I mean, I, the upcoming piece of work. I, I imagine it's it's a it's a large undertaking, but I can see why you're starting with genetics. It seems to be the the linker of um, many 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 different fields. Um, so it's like the what do you call it the common denominator, perhaps to some extent. Uh, well, correct in many ways. I mean, genetics has since 1900 has really become almost the the centerpiece of biological theory, no matter whether you're talking about physiology or uh, field biology or evolutionary theory, whatever. Uh, it uh, certainly genetics has become central uh, to almost every aspect of biology. Uh, and I mean, it's it's, a, it's sort of uh, an accident in a way. I did my uh, thesis work in graduate school uh, on uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan, who did the initial work on uh, using fruit flies to develop the chromosome theory. And uh, uh, I wrote a biography of Morgan, and I've been uh, involved in uh, the relationship between genetics and eugenics uh, for many years. So in many ways, my really focus has been the history of genetics in all of its aspects uh, for uh, virtually the whole uh, my whole career. Uh, but there's also, as you point out, uh, that uh, over time, genetics has really become the central theoretical part that underlies almost every aspect of uh, uh, the life sciences today. Yes, indeed. Um, I, is, if it's okay, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about, it, it's more my, my selfish interest, if that's okay. I did see you... Okay. 
you have, <laughs> okay. you have produced some work on this and perhaps maybe not as much as you have in other areas, but I, I'm very interested in the, um, in the idea of what underlies uh, the way we do the way we do research, what underpins it. So for example, I know you, you've spoken about the, the materialist, the mechanist and holistic or organicist, the two different right. ways um, working in materialist um, um, framework. Right, right. And also kind of maybe what's often been conflated with holistic or organicist accounts, but is often maybe non-materialist, the vitalist way of thinking. Right. I'd just like to get your perspectives on those because I notice, I think I've seen a big resurgence. So I, I'm not a historian like you, but I've noticed, you know, the third way of evolution. There's a whole website with many um, on process ontologists, it seems. Um, right. And, and I just like well, I can I can uh, tell you a little bit about that. I'm not a I'm not as well versed in all the philosophicals. Uh, Comings and goings as a, a, a professional philosopher would be, and uh, but uh, this these issues, the debates between the uh, mechanistic biology and the holistic biology uh, were were very much to the front in the 19 teens and 20s and 30s, uh, and the period when genetics, classical genetics, was maturing, and uh, it was. Uh, uh, exemplified by the mechanistic side by people like Jacques Lerbe uh, and the uh, holistic side by people like, uh, including sort of Whitehead, but more biologically uh, trained people such as Jacob von Uxekult, uh, Joseph Henry Woodger, uh, E.S. Russell. So a bunch of people who were trying to uh, counter the, the sort of view that life is nothing more than chemical reactions. Uh, and that the organism is nothing more than a bag of enzymes. And that approach was uh, people like Lerb stated it very explicitly in, 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 uh, in rather extreme terms. Uh, but uh, uh, so many people, including T.H. Morgan and his whole crew at Columbia and uh, many other geneticists, R.A. Emerson at Cornell, uh, all sort of subscribe to a materialistic uh, view that the organism was composed of material entities and that these material, there was nothing more special. Uh, there was no life force or vital energy, uh, as was being claimed by some people that called themselves vitalists. And the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the mechanistic biologists were really <coughs> trying to counter that approach, which said essentially that, uh, that you can't Ultimately, you cannot distinguish, uh, uh, you, you cannot uh, uh, reduce living systems to just chemical and physical forces, that they have some special, they call it a vital fluid, a vital force, uh, various terms. Uh, but that seemed to the mechanist rather defeatist because it's essentially biologists will never be able to get to what it is that makes up a living system and just differentiates it from a non-living system. So that debate was uh, very much to the fore among many people uh, in the teens and 20s and 30s. And I think you're right, this uh, uh, so-called uh, process ontology or processual ontology uh, uh, is a revival of that idea of the holistic view, but in, I think in, in a much more sophisticated way than their predecessors could do, you know, way back a uh, hundred years ago. Um, 
partly because biology has so much more uh, theoretical uh, underpinnings now than it did then, and the molecular biology part has really been uh, the uh, and and computers and genomics and so on has really contributed to being able to do something more with that approach than simply talk about it. So I think the process ontology uh, is really a revival of what uh, was sometimes called holistic biology or organicist uh, biology in the past, uh, but is really trying to look at uh, biological processes as wholes uh, and uh, very you know, anti-reductionism. You can't understand an organism by studying, you know, a hundred different uh, enzyme-catalyzed reactions separately from each other. Uh, you really have to, and genomics seems to be a plot, uh, providing one way of approaching that by uh, being able to analyze uh, how different genomes function uh, with relation to their particular uh, genomic elements and that uh, different genes interact with each other in different ways and the genetic background is extremely important that there's no such thing as just a direct translation of a segment of DNA into a phenotype uh, and these these kind of approaches are I think beginning to uh, provide a very fruitful uh, way to sort of understand life as uh, a basically a a complex set of organizations and uh, and that means processes so uh just to identify a stretch of dna as having some uh particular you know translational element into uh, a protein or whatever is uh not going to tell you uh how that system functions in a living organism so i'm very excited about this, this new new approach uh and partly because it undermines uh the whole approach that was gaining particular social significance uh, in behavior genetics in the 90s and 80s and 90s about uh, a gene for criminality or a gene for schizophrenia or whatever. And those uh, those particular approaches really had some dire social uh, consequences if they were applied uh, in that, that way in a clinical uh context. So uh, the, uh, I think there are many reasons why a more holistic organicist approach is uh, really going to help push biology uh, uh, even more to the forefront among the, the sciences. Thank you. I, I'm going to try and just say what I think I understood there and, and please correct okay. me. <laughs> I, I okay. Okay. I, I thought you were saying that you know, there there have been these different approaches in in history. The, the mechanist approach, where um, the the aim is to reduce everything to chemicals. So life is just a combination of chemicals. And if we, you know, break the TV TV apart, we can put it back together again and figure out what life is. Um, right. But but I also saw that you're saying that there's this other approach, the organicist approach, which is much more holistic and treating things as systems almost. And um, and that seems to be making a comeback in a more sophisticated way and if if i'm right you i think you were saying that it's actually you feel like it would be more safer safer for society um as well as maybe more productive in biology is is that is that right yeah i think that's a a, a very concise summary <laughs> thank you for uh doing it so so easily that uh, but that is exactly what i was just trying to say it has it has only the new movement has not only consequence, good consequences for 
biology and biology research and biomedical research, but also for you know clinical and social policies as well. Yes. Oh, the future sounds bright. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, what? The future sounds bright. <laughs> right. Yeah, it really does. I think we're 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 moving in uh, a positive direction. Well, that that brings me on to another question. Um, we haven't really spoken about vitalism, and I know it was it Watson or Crick. I'm not sure which of the two. They both took challenges. One was to figure out how development happens. The other one, from what I understood, was to put the final nail in the coffin in vitalism. Um, do you think that final nail has been plunged into the coffin? Or, or could you see at, at some point, uh, you know, not the right terminology, but emerging back? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, the term vitalism itself is uh, is loaded and has been used pejoratively uh, on both sides of the debate from the 17th and 18th century uh, onward. And the uh, what I think the... Uh, to give them their due, I think what the vitalists were trying to counteract was the Cartesian notion that the organism is just a machine. And that became, that notion was very much promulgated not only by Descartes, but also by uh, a number of biologists in the 18th century uh, who uh, really compared organisms to clocks. To they built, you know, organ, uh, model organisms that a duck that would drink water and uh, do a, a lot, mimic a lot of, uh, of, of vital activities uh, of a live organism. Uh, and they showed that they could do it with gears and levers and that sort of thing. And uh, so, but. People who really looked at, especially the functional aspect of organisms, just realized these machine analogies uh, were uh, so simplistic as to be of very, very limited value in thinking and trying to understand, you know, organic processes. And so, but but a number of those people, in reacting against that mechanical view, uh, sort of went to the other extreme and uh, said that uh, you know organisms have these vital forces and vital properties that uh, uh, we'll never be able to understand uh, in mechanical terms, and uh, so that we should uh, uh, you know, that that the mechanical analogies are leading us astray. And the problem with that, that, as I mentioned earlier, is that that essentially says the problem is beyond the reach of you know what we can envision as any kind of scientific uh, you know explanation uh, or research. As a result, the 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 new generation of uh, of, of materialists of mechanistic biology uh, were much more. Uh, they brought in chemistry more than just you know physical machine analogies, uh, and and they were trying to say there is are ways you can get to understanding a vital process like respiration or like uh, uh, the, the the way. Blood uh, cells carry hemoglobin and that sort of thing. Um, so that they're, they were uh, arguing that uh, this vitalism is just defeatist uh, and it's uh, it's obscurantist. And they called it every name in the book they could think of that was derogatory. Um, but they but then this middle group, the organicists or the holists, uh, 
were trying to strike a middle ground, and the, the problem was they didn't have the tools, often laboratory tools, investigative tools, uh, whatever, to put their holistic approach into practice. It was uh, of limited value. Uh, the reductionist approach was much easier. You could always grind up a fruit fly in a, a wearing blender and you know, separate out its proteins and uh, find out what catalyzes what and so on. And that you can get some positive knowledge uh, that way, uh, even though from the holistic point of view, <clears throat> you're not really understanding the fruit fly as a fruit fly. So I think the... Uh, uh, the, the the fact that over the course of 300 or so years, the reductionist analytical approach has produced a lot of results, whereas the holistic approach has uh, produced, in many ways, minimal results other than uh, providing a, a new philosophical perspective on the organism. Uh, but it has often been uh, simply pushed aside as uh, being possibly interesting but not uh, uh, not empirically productive. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm wary of the time. I, I, I don't want to go too too far over because I, I said half an hour. So I just I have one more question for you, which is a sure. I'm going out a little bit on this one, but I, I just thought, why not? I'll, I'll try. <laughs> um, <laughs> it. My perspective is that organisms. Um, we we have. So, so, so there's there's the body aspect, which which maybe is better explained in terms of a system. That's true in terms of the way we analyze it. But the actual organism I experience in myself as, it, I experience a qualitative world. I don't see any reason to suppose some other organism. Uh, what's the word? I'm sorry. I I, I see my I, I experience a qualitative world of you know I'm conscious of uh -huh. uh, not just self-conscious but but the fact that I am. I, I experience, I'm an experiencer of the world. That seems like a very important aspect of biology. And I'm just wondering, in, in your, your long travels through um, the history of biology, this question of consciousness, is it something that is just, can we just call it an emergent property and be done with it? Or is it something that's just outside of the realm of science? What, what are your perspectives on it? Well, uh, I am really not, terribly qualified to answer that question uh, other than just uh, speculation. Uh, I mean, I think the word consciousness has been used uh, to describe or various states of different kinds of organisms uh, for centuries. Uh, I mean, I think it even goes back to Aristotle. But uh, the notion that uh, uh, what do we mean by consciousness uh, is something both philosophers and psychologists and uh, animal behaviorists have uh, uh, have grappled with. Uh, I, I mean, there is such. I think there is such a thing as consciousness. Um, I mean, depending on what organism you're talking about, uh, humans certainly have self-consciousness. Uh, that I don't think there's any debate about that. Uh, whether uh, a, a fox or a cat has self-consciousness is, I think, more questionable or debatable. They certainly are conscious, if by conscious we mean they are aware of things in their environment and respond to them. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, that I think it's a useful <coughs> concept because different animal, the animal behavior of people tell me that different animals have very different consciousnesses about uh, 
the world and the environment around them. Uh, so I think it is uh, useful, but it has to be kind of defined, I think, carefully in each context, what you mean by uh, this or that act being a conscious act. Yes, that's, thank you for that point. That it's, I agree, the term consciousness is, um, it's got many different ways that it can be interpreted. You know, I, I right. got punched <laughs> in the boxing ring and I'm unconscious. Or <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, okay, th thank you. Thank you very much, Guy. I, I really appreciate your time. If, uh, okay, ask, Brian, good luck with the podcast. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, I enjoyed talking with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for joining me for this um, very interesting discussion with Gar Professor Garland Allen. Um, I'm, I'm just—I'd love to just talk to him all day, to be honest. He's got—you can see—he's got such incredible knowledge and insights into the history of biology, and it's something that I really crave. Actually, I—I I feel like, I, truthfully, I feel like I was shortchanged, and maybe it's not. I can't blame anyone. But I went through many years of training as a biologist at university and then through my PhD. And not once did it cross my mind that the history and or preferably and philosophy of biology would be important to consider. And now I can see that actually having that breadth of knowledge is so important in science because maybe we can't know everything, obviously, and there's only a limit to what we can know. We're specialists most of the time. However, I think it allows us to become better informed so that we can design experiments better, um, maybe not make so many mistakes, maybe come up with things that go beyond the normal. We get kind of stuck into the, at least I did in, in the lab, you get stuck in the rut of doing everything the way that everyone else does it. There's an experimental protocol that the lab just passes around. Um, and just listening to, um, listening to Gar, there just really got me thinking that wow there's such a big world out there and really he was just mainly talking about the 20th century biology where he spoke about the predominance of mechanism or mechanistic thought reductionism sometimes it's maybe called um, the idea that things can be reduced to a mechanism so not things but biology so, so the idea that life is composed of parts and if you just break it all up you and um, uh, look at all the pieces it is possible to put Humpty Dumpty back together again but actually there's a whole other school of thought called organicism or holism which is pushing through now and has been around for many years but it just hasn't been taken so seriously um, but now we can see it is I spoke to um, one biologist already who represents the growing emergence of, of um, perhaps we can say process ontologists Professor Dennis Noble you can check out that um, interview um, and the idea being that organisms are complex systems and you can't just pull things apart and expect to be able to understand the whole by looking at the parts. So in other words, the whole is more than the sum of the parts is another way of saying it. Um, this isn't to say that um, looking at the pieces isn't important and informative, but we have to have a bigger framework upon which to understand how those things fit together. And Gar seemed to be saying, from what I understood, that this isn't just important in terms of the progress of biology, but it's also important um, socially, politically, 
and maybe for um, medically. Um, we're seeing a lot now in in biology to do with the hollow genome, the idea that um, we've got just as many cells that are bacterial in origin on us as human cells. So kind of a one-to-one -one ratio, which kind of indicates um, what they're seeing is that these cells are very important, these bacteria. It's not like they're not just doing anything. They're often fulfilling very important functions um, for us. So therefore, uh, what is an organism? <laughs> what is an organism? Uh, there's a word, the hollow biont. So instead of an organism, it's the hollow biont, the idea that we're a combination of organisms and that's what an organism is. Now, I ask Gar at the end the question of consciousness. My own perspective is that, yes, this body is a machine and we can investigate it in many different ways and there'll be different ways which are more suitable, perhaps the or, uh, or organicism or um, uh, process ontology route of understanding organisms as systems. However, there is a point. Organisms, at least I, experience the world and that's the main thing I care about. So my question, it does remain. Um, how do we deal with this question of consciousness? Is it something that biology can deal with? Or do we explain it as an emergent property? The fact that, you know, I'm an experiencing person. Um, is, it, is it perhaps important in, in affecting biology? Um, it's, it's, it's a very interesting question and I'm not sure how we're gonna deal with it. So I'm, I'm gonna keep asking the question. Um, for most researchers, it's not their specialist field and that's okay. Um, I'll, I'll ask and hopefully at some point I'm, I'm going to get an answer from, from someone that's going to really um, lead to an interesting line of thought. And I hope, I've got ideas. I've got ideas for experiments we can do biology, in biology with consciousness. Um, but I don't want to be called crazy. Do you know what I mean? So I need to, <laughs> I need to talk to uh, fellow scientists, philosophers, historians, and just, just see what kind of ideas are out there. Um, Thank you very much for listening and who have we got next time? It's a surprise, I'm not telling you.